0: the fog and phantasm two terrorific hits together to grab you phantasm if it doesn't kill you this time you've been dead too long and from the creator of halloween john
1: carpenter's the fog lock your windows bolt your doors there's something in the fog the fog and phantasm no one can escape from now rated r Radio Drome. Welcome to a lovely Thursday night. I am Josh Hadley and you are listening to Radio Drome. Peter is sick this week and Cecil is busy doing daddy things. That does, that's not meant to be creepy, it means he's watching his son so he can't be here. So, filling in for tonight's episode will be Fred Fritz by, "quote, popular demand." <laughs> There's a scary thought. There's actually been people that keep saying, bring Fred back. And I'm like, you don't know him. I will eat your face. But before we get into the topic tonight, you guys need to go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free Power O-Ring, the O stands for orgasm, and free U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. So tonight, Fred, we're going to look at a company where most people listening to the show have probably seen a large collection of their movies, and they probably don't know much about Avco Embassy. I personally love Avco Embassy, especially, we're going to specifically look at the movies they put out in the mid to late 80s, but their 70s, 60s, and 50s work, man, this is a fascinating company that people just forgot about like you remember avco embassy you remember that great logo of the of the the two letters coming together and whatnot before quite a few of these relatively low budget early 80s films
0: oh yeah uh, in fact because again you know before we had all the resources we have today uh we've talked about it there was you know fango magazine starlog premiere later on and again it was hard to know what to rent we we didn't have the resources so you had to cover direct... art
1: tended to a little deceptive in that age didn't
0: it uh more than a little but it was great i miss it but the other thing that i would go by and i I think you i peter Cecil have all talked about this is we would look at the logos on the boxes and you know there was like key video and new new world and all these companies all throughout time and avco was one of them it was one of those that you looked at and said hey yeah they tend to put out a particular kind of product Let's let's go back to the beginning. Avco
1: Embassy was formed by Joseph Levine in 1942. He got his start in, I mean, he really, the, the company really kicked into gear in the mid-1950s with all those. Remember those Steve Reeves Hercules movies? Those were so freaking weird. He made all of those, okay? <laughs> so those were Avco Embassy. Still in the 1950s avco is the one who brought godzilla king of the monsters to america and they were the ones who produced the american footage all the raymond burr stuff and the redubbing so even though godzilla gojira came out in 1954 they were the ones who brought godzilla to america Things were going all right for them. Then we get into the 1960s. They're still relatively a low-budget company. No one would ever claim that those Steve Reeves Hercules movies were big budget. And like I said, they didn't technically make Godzilla King of the Monsters. They just made their version. I guess the way New World would in 85. In the 60s, they were putting out things like Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Village of the Giants, Jesse James Meets Frankenstein's Daughter, Billy the Kid vs. <laughs> Dracula, Mad Monster Party. So these guys weren't known for kind of the drive-in, low-budget stuff.
0: I-, I know people love the Santa Claus one. Uh, I'm actually very partial to uh, uh, Billy and Dracula. John Carradine
1: as is- a top hat-wearing Dracula.
0: Uh yeah that clip where Billy shoots him and he just stands there as he's being shot and then Billy throws the gun and it hits him in the face and he goes oh! <laughs> drops to the ground. It's it, it's really worth checking out even for those couple of moments.
1: They were making all these drive-in fare and then they also had some other things in here just forgettable movies like The Oscar. Daydreamer, Nevada Smith, the second best secret agent of the whole wide world, country music on Broadway, Darling, Requiem for a Gunfighter. They were kind of making, let's say, Drek at this point. Well, then all of a sudden, they made this one little movie in 1967. Came out right before Christmas, The Graduate. All of a sudden, they're on the map. Then, the next year, they make The Producers with Mel Brooks. All of a sudden, AVCO Embassy, or sorry, they're not even AVCO Embassy. They're just Embassy at this point. All all of a sudden, they're major players, and they didn't even realize it.
0: It it looks as if they were even good scripts. It's random, right? There's been lots of movies that you can look at the script. Yeah, this is pretty good, but the direction's flat. The cast was wrong. And, man, they just they hit that sweet spot where it all started to come together.
1: And then they they kept making things through the 1970s. They made quite a few recognizable films until we get to 1979, but you've got, like, Day of the Dolphin. Remember where George C. Scott trains a dolphin to kill the president? And no, the movie's a lot better than I just made it sound. A scientist
0: makes a fantastic breakthrough, communication with another species, but his secret is stolen for use in an incredible and deadly plot. Can you find me? Will hurt <laughs> stop now yeah! george c scott stars in the day of the dolphin on nbc saturday night at the movies at nine eight central time but it's still insane
1: oh it's still insane but it's not as stupid as it sounds with the way i just described it
0: there are moments but it's at least entertaining
1: honestly pretty good cool psychic killer movie which i liked you've got voyage of the damned with orson wells you've got the manitou which is just an insane horror film and then you've got they did not make this movie but they they were the ones who brought watership down over from england the animated super violent killer bunny movie
0: that's unfair. I just want to say that that's one of my favorite animated films. And that's, I, I see a lot of these reviewers on YouTube and they're always like, it's a horror show. It's all that. It's it's a wonderful movie. And it's it's a film about hope. And you you have to have conflict to have that sense of hope. That's what it's really about. I think it's, I think it gets a bad rep. It's not like that. What's the one with the cat, uh, Feliday, I think it's called, where they like literally the cats are ripping their guts out. It's like Dario Gento makes an animated movie. It's not that bad. In
1: 1968, Avco, who made a, Avco was, was a company that made airplane parts. They wanted to get into the motion picture business. So they bought Embassy Pictures and now it became Avco Embassy Pictures. It was at this point where things started to get weird in a good way. Now once they became Avco Embassy. Now the drive-in market is not dying, but you've got this new home video thing coming out and you've got more competition than you ever had before. Yeah, you don't have like AIP any anymore. I mean, they're still around, but they're not they're not the low-budget powerhouse they were in the 60s. And then you've got Roger Corman and the just starting up Charles Band Productions. Wasn't even Empire yet. And so all of a sudden, all of a sudden under Avco Embassy, within 2 years they put out phantasm golden girl and city on fire the canadian city on fire not the ringo lamb tarantino movie and all of a sudden they're kind of on the map and people are noticing them in the genre so the movies we're thinking about i'm not sure another company would have had the balls to make phantasm back then do you
0: that's we're we're kind of going into that weird insane period where uh films like jaws and star wars uh defied every expectation there was and again i know this comes up a lot i'm sorry about star wars but people just you had to have lived through that period everything changed and everyone was looking for the next hit they were looking for everything and anything uh so it was kind of a a golden period but i have to agree on phantasm because that movie is well first of all the movie's not only just weird because we're looking at the final product right i mean we're judging it by the final product and coscarelli has been very open with the fact that he honestly did not have a complete idea he he had kind of
1: comes forward when you watch it you can (laughs) kind of see that this movie's being made up as it goes along
0: yeah, and I think that's more interesting as a fact than anything, that this guy who had this idea based on, hey, the last movie I made was a family film, but uh, the haunted house scene got people scared.
1: In case they want to see that movie, that's Kenny and Company.
0: Yeah, that's Kenny and Company. It Basically, it's it's just one of those things where it, if you look at Every major studio back to that period, you're gonna find some wacky titles. You really will. They were, they were all shooting for the gold. I mean, remember, they actually put, Damnation Alley was going to be the big movie to go up against Star Wars.
1: Actually no, Damnation Alley was... Th- those were both Fox releases. Yeah. Damnation Alley was su- Damnation Alley was supposed to be the big hit of the year, and Star Wars was just this little movie that some people might go see. Well,
0: that's what I meant. I apologize. I worded it improperly. Just that was the movie that was going to be the big <laughs> film. That was the film that was supposed to take it. It's like you look at it compared to Star Wars, and it's it's quaint. But then,
1: but then you have stuff like Golden Girl. Now you gotta remember, you know, the Olympics are coming up in, you know, in a, in a year or so. So they make a neo-Nazi, neo-Nazi scientist experimenting chemically on a girl at the Olympics movie and you're like, wow. I, you, you just would not have seen that from a, a major studio, would you have? Golden Girl could not have been made by a studio.
0: Well, uh, no, and it's, it's, it's just weird and bizarre, and I don't remember when Boys from Brazil came out, but I do remember there was that floating, like, the Nazi stories, you know, Marathon Man, Boys from Brazil, uh, another one I just, I'm drawing a complete blank on, but it was kind of a theme, but Golden Girl is really weird. Again, a very strange movie. I,
1: I, think, I think one of the things with Golden Girl is it's such a ridiculous premise and they never play it goofy. This thing is played like serious ass drama, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I, I get what they were going for because obviously the Nazis were experimenting with genetics. They were trying to dominate, for instance, in the Olympics. They were experimenting with drugs. You could see where the idea comes from. Okay, it, it, it was something they were really doing, but the way it's done in this movie is just nuts.
1: I think that's the charm the movie has. It's goofy and it doesn't know it. That's some of the most charming filmmaking you can have.
0: I'll agree, but I don't like that one. That's one you can't get me to sit through again.
1: Well, but then you had like a, you know, you had City on Fire, where you had this huge all-star cast, because even though they're a little late to the game, remember, you know, MGM is making Earthquake, and you know, Swarm, and all this, and you know, all the major studios are making their big event disaster films and Avco Embassy wanted to get on that but they only had like a $2 million budget <laughs> so basically the entire city is on fire and it's it's like trying to watch MGM's Earthquake it, it's like watching the exploitation version of that really and I think it's a better film for it
0: well I, I got one better for you if you've ever been to the uh, the uh Universal was it Universal Studios Earthquake ride it's like watching that being filmed at least this one I like old girl this one's actually kind of fun to watch though
1: and then all of a sudden they kind of break their mold and they're like okay they're getting a lot of exploitation ground and then they make the onion field oh okay so now we're making an oscar contender movie out of nowhere it just doesn't it's a great movie but it really doesn't fit with the rest of the output Avco embassy was putting out at this time does it
0: well Again, I, I'm gonna say no, it does. Uh because we we're thinking in terms of linear, like, okay, if you make Friday the thirteenth, you make a lot of horror movies, but then again that was paramount, which they didn't do. Studios throw a lot of lure well, let me rephrase this, they used to throw a lot of lures into the water to see which fishes they would catch. So it's for a low budget company, that's not really a big surprise. That's what the big majors did too. They let's try a drama, let's try a comedy, let's try a science fiction, let's try an exploitation, and blah 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 and let's see what hits.
1: Now, at at this point, they're still experimenting. Now, Mm -hmm. AIP left exploitation at this point. AIP went under, so now really their only real competition, other than the occasional independent, is Charles Band and Roger Corman. They decided to pick up the slack AIP left in a pretty magnificent way. Within two years, Avco Embassy makes the fog, death ship, Night Games, Prom Night, The Exterminator, Scanners, The Howling, Dead and Buried, Final Exam, Escape from New York, Eye for an Eye, Time Bandits, Vice Squad, Swamp Thing, and Parasite. In a two year span. Do you
0: think they were trying to be the next AIP? definitely i mean they didn't make time bandits but uh all the rest yeah um, they
1: they they distributed, they distributed time bandits
0: sorry yeah yeah cuz the only reason i know that is that's handmade films george harrison's company but yeah uh it's a great lineup they also did another movie called hopscotch which doesn't fit in that grouping at all you want to talk about standing out
1: they also i was just talking about the exploitation stuff at right. this time they also took, made like the comedy take this job and shove it or the dramedy the night the lights went out in georgia
0: yeah, or Carbon Copy, uh. Um, Tulips, The Seduction. Which I never saw that one, so I don't know about that one. It's kind of weird how
1: they became the exploitation go-to. Even really when you look at it, look at how many of those movies I named are by ex-Roger Corman employees too. Really, I, I you know, almost twisting the knife at Corman being the, their competitor for a little bit. When you're like, wow, probably half of those are made by ex-Corman people.
0: And what we have to keep in mind is you brought up about the VHS. That had was just coming into formation at this time. This is when guys like Charlie Band says, hey, there's a future in that VHS thing. Him and I can never remember the other guy's name that also did this, but they these were the two guys that basically pioneered it. They really did. That's when, you know, Band goes over because he made Parasite for Avco, didn't he? Yep. He starts, you know, he gets investors and they put together Empire Pictures. So I agree with you when you say they not only took over for the AIP, what I think you're seeing here is actually the template for what would define the lower budgeted exploitation fare throughout the 80s.
1: Exactly, and we can't overlook, there's some shockingly good films in this little junket right here. I mean, first, starting off 1980, almost at the beginning of the year, is The Fog. When you look at the history of The Fog, it's almost scary how bad this movie was at first. Basically, John Carpenter made the movie, he turned in his cut to Avco, and they were like, man, this doesn't work. So they gave him an extra, like, I think it was 50, 60,000 bucks to go reshoot a bunch of scenes, and then the movie comes out great. How often is it where the studio says, no, we need more, we need more scenes, makes the movie better?
0: Well, to be, uh, to be fair, I think that in this case, and Carpenter's always been very honest, the fog in his mind was to be more of like a, for lack of a better way of wording it, like a family horror film. It was supposed to be, you know, the ghost story told around the fire, which literally happens in the movie. Uh, John
1: Houseman in the beginning, yeah. Yeah,
0: it's literally the ghost story told around the fire, and he said he wanted to make something that was a little bit more old-fashioned, and he missed the mark. That's all. And even with the reshoots, you know, it's not a perfect movie. But, yeah, here's an example where the studio looked at it and kind of went, there ain't much here and the reshoots definitely helped this movie there's no doubt about that
1: i like the movie like you said it does have problems i'm kind of curious i would love to see if if some company kind of like with the halloween six producers cut i would love to see the uh, that original cut that didn't work in quotes i'd love to see if it really you know if like if we saw it we'd go wow that really didn't work
0: well, we don't see the pirates much at all, from what I understand. That was almost all part of the reshoots.
1: But but then you've got, like, Death Ship. It's not a classic, but it's good. You've got Prom Night, you know, coming in at the relative beginning of the slasher boom. Prom Night is so weird in the fact that when it comes to the ratings, now slasher movies have been coming out pretty steadily since Friday the 13th and whatnot. And, you know, obviously starting at Halloween. But Prom Night's original cut came in at PG. And Avco Embassy was afraid nobody would go to see a PG-rated slasher movie, so they gave them more money to add more gore to the film. Let's see that happen today, huh? (laughs) Right here at the beginning of, well, at the middle of 1980, you've got The Exterminator. Such a fantastically dark, dark movie that is still goofy enough to be fun. When you look at that whole child-selling rape club scene, you can't call that fun but then, like, there's the guy making the hot dog with the two wires stuck into it. And you're like, am I supposed to take all of this movie seriously?
0: Yeah, The Exterminator is a very odd film because it's one of those films that, in many respects, goes too far for what it's trying to achieve. And yet, because it goes too far, it makes the, uh, the vengeance part of it, the vigilante kills, way more satisfying. And I almost feel like it was more accidental, if you know what I mean, that this film comes out the way it does. Because if you really look at the way the film plays out, you know, what, you're in Vietnam in the beginning and you didn't really need that. Then you're on the streets and then all this horrific, way over the top violence happens. A lot of it can turn again back in 1980. It did turn your stuff. And again, this was as we're, you were pointing out, this is sort of the birth of a whole new era. And these films were, they were gut-wrenching, okay? And Carpenter had already done Assault on Precinct 13 where the little girl got shot. And that was very shocking at that time period. So shocking
1: that it originally got the Assault on Precinct 13 and freaking X rating for that one scene alone. And it's a pretty bloodless scene. Just the fact that he shot a kid X-rating.
0: But I'll tell you what, the scene made me so nauseous. In fact, it made me so nauseous that I didn't finish the movie and I didn't actually see the second part. Well, what am I saying? That happens early on. So almost the rest of the film until five years later. I can see how it got that X-rating at that time period. Okay, again, at that particular time. It was shocking, and so the exterminator is much the same way, and it's very gratuitous. That's the word I think we're we're both scrounging in the dark for here. It is very gratuitous. It is very exploitive, but taps into something accidentally because then when the exterminator begins exterminating, it just works.
1: It well, I think setting it against even in 1980, Forty Second Street, kind of on its, you know, starting the wind down, gives it such atmosphere and ambiance that you just couldn't get if it were set anywhere else.
0: Yeah, it does feel like a war zone. It it feels like a demilitarized war zone, and I think that's exactly what Glickenhaus was going for.
1: You know, 1981, Scanners, Cronenberg coming out with exploding heads. I don't see a studio having made Scanners.
0: Yeah. I- I know you always see studio – to me, Evco Embassy is a studio, and they still think like a studio. They just do it on a more reserved budget. They take more chances because they kind of have to, right? They're not going to compete with Paramount. Or Warner Brothers, they're not gonna get the star power those cats get. So they have to take chances. But there's still a studio, and they still have to think like a studio. It was a different time, and Scanners was, uh, one of those films that, I have to ask, did they, they actually put money into this, right? They actually made it?
1: They actually produced Scanners.
0: Yeah. I'll say in this case again, I will agree somewhat though. This is a weird movie, but it fits a little more now. Science fiction, fantasy was coming out a little bit more i could see where they take a chance on it but can you imagine reading that script and how it would like you see the film it's very visual there's very little dialogue and the idea of a scanner looking at another scanner and their heads are just tilting back and forth and you're hearing noises going and then heads blow up can you imagine what reading that must have been like
1: which is probably why cronenberg was writing the film as he was shooting it yeah so they wouldn't have to read it
0: How much you want to make a bet this film was made is a pitch.
1: Because according to Cronenberg, there was no script. They He was writing the scenes for the day on the day that they were shooting them.
0: Yeah, I don't see how you could have a What What would you write? They stare at each other. They stare at each other intently. They stare at each other more intently. It's an Anison moment. (laughs) I mean, what, what do you write?
1: well but then you've got also in 1981 you've got abco embassy making the howling
0: what she has witnessed she cannot escape
1: I around, but I didn't see
0: him. what he has become he cannot control
1: you don't know what it's like and what you experience no one will believe
0: until they come face to face with the inhuman fear that is the howling Redar now playing at a theater near you check newspapers
1: the fantastic movie i i don't know you you got the other werewolf films coming out around this time and yeah wolfen technically counts cuz it was sold as a werewolf film this was the only one to outright go satire now american werewolf is a humorous movie but the howling is a straight up satire of werewolf movies that's kind of a ballsy thing to do at the beginning of a werewolf movie boom
0: i think so I think so. It's, uh, again, they took a risk and, uh, it's a risk that, uh, pays off. I was actually going to start jokingly say, ah, that's one sucked, but it's actually one of my favorite werewolf movies. And I will say this, that this is also my favorite werewolf, the design. I, I adore this look and this is my personal favorite. Uh, the long some, hair and the huge ears and all that. The big long ears. Cause you know, like even in Batman, I always preferred the big long gothic ears that he had you know those cathedral ears and i like that look and the look on the the werewolves and howling is fantastic in fact i was watching waxworks not too long ago and i was like oh i love this werewolf it reminds me a bit of the howling and guess what the commentary said anthony hickox wanted the werewolves to look like the howling so not a big surprise
1: Well, and then also to stay with this theme, still in 1981, we've got Dead and Buried and Final Exam. you got a horror film and a slasher film here. Again, still riding the whole slasher boom. And then everything kind of changed in 1981. I don't know how Carpenter got them to do this, but they put up the largest budget they've ever done before. $6 million to put (gasps) up for Escape from New York. You can see that that $6 million is on the screen.
0: I can't tell you, I was 11 years old, and I could never put into words how much this movie affected me. Uh, my friend Mitch came over, and uh, my parents left, and I was not allowed to watch this one, because my brother's wife saw it at the drive-in and said, it's a horrible movie where they shoot people and run them over with cars. And Basically, I was banned from seeing it, and Mitch talked me into putting it on HBO, and my parents came home while we were watching it. I got so busted, but I told my mom, I said, Mom, this movie is nothing like she said it was and whatever. I got to rewatch the movie with my, I still got in trouble, (laughs) but my mom watched it with me and she loved it. So, it's, it's, you
1: know, one of those special movies for me. Well, audiences loved it too. Avco Embassy, for all the risks that they're taking, all these films we're talking about with scanners and howling and all that, they're all making more than double, sometimes triple their budgets. So, while they're only putting in a million to a two million dollars into a film, they're making five or six million. Whereas the studios at this time are losing their shirts because you got the slasher movie boom taking away their audiences, and then you have Corman, now Charles Band, and now have Co-Embassy taking away their audience. You'll notice that the studios, other than huge tentpole things like start the Star Trek movies or Star Wars or something, mm-hmm. are putting out relatively few horror sci-fi movies in this era.
0: Well, and also, do you know why these films, these type of films, were killing it, whereas the other ones weren't? The majors were still making more adult-style movies. They were still aiming at that more mature audience that was going on through the late 60s and, you know, 70s. Again, Star Wars and Jaws changed everything, and now kids were going to the movies again, which you had brought up the Roger Corman thing. And what has Roger Corman always said? Who did he aim at? Teens. What mark? Yeah, he always aimed at the teens. And now something else was happening. Not only were teens going back to the cinema, but kids were going too. And they were begging their parents to take them to these movies. And you were starting to get adults taking kids to R-rated movies. Believe me, I saw it. <laughs> I was one of those kids. These films were making this money because they were getting the adult ticket, the teen ticket, and the child ticket. And that was just not heard of until this time period.
1: Well, and now before we get into what they did in 1982, there was a shakeup at the company. The company was was sold for $25 million to Norman Lear. You know, Norman Lear of All in the Family and the Jeffersons fame and all that. Mm Because Norman Lear, while he didn't make a bad decision by buying Avco Embassy, he bought Avco Embassy because he made what at the time probably seemed like a very good decision. His production company, minus him, invested in this stupid-sounding movie called Blade Runner. And Norman Lear didn't want any part of it. He didn't think science fiction was a was a viable market, and he didn't like the script, which I can agree that, that early script was terrible, but back when it was dangerous days. So Norman Lear opted out of producing Blade Runner. In retrospect, you'd go, kind of a mistake, but he took the money he would have put into Blade Runner and bought Avco Embassy. So now, Avco Embassy changes its name. It's no longer Avco since they're no longer a partner here. It's just Embassy Home Entertainment. And then he decided, because he comes from TV, to break it off into a couple of different divisions. You have the theatrical distribution division. You have now Embassy Television, which at this time is producing all of his shows, like The Jeffersons, Archie Bunker's Place, and Gloria, and so forth, but also putting out minor little hits like The Facts of Life, One Day at a Time, Different Strokes, Silver Spoons, Who's the Boss? You know, mild TV hits.
0: You know, you definitely start to see a bit of a change in the kind of movies they made. Uh they still had genre stuff and that, but I don't know. I I don't think it was a bad decision. I mean Norman Lear obviously knew television and you, it's not like you can blame the man for trying to stick with what he knew. It's where he made money. I'm glad he didn't do Blade Runner. You know, Alan Ladd Jr. was the uh, guy who trumpeted that movie all the way to the theater. Alan Ladd
1: Jr. was Norman Lear's business partner.
0: Yeah, yeah, but no, I don't. I don't think it's a. It's a bad thing. It's a change. It's a change that kept it alive for a period because I believe he sold it not too long he, after. Uh, he
1: sold it in 1985. I'll get around to
0: that. Yeah. No, I'm just saying. I. I Talking about he only owned it for a short period of time overall. I don't think it was a bad thing. It was uh, smart, and he just did what he knew, so I can't really fault him. I don't think he did anything bad in this period.
1: Well, and then he also saw this emerging home video market. So he also broke off Embassy Home Entertainment to start making VHS tapes, which would not only release the movies that Avco Embassy had put out, but also release other people's products. So he became a home video distributor as well. Then in this period, Avco Embassy, I don't know if they were already committed to these, but this is the period after Norman Lear buys it where Vice Squad, Swamp Thing, Parasite, James Glickenhouse's The Soldier, Come out. Those don't seem like the kind of films Norman Lear would have put out. So I kind of think those were things that were already committed to before he grabbed the company, most likely.
0: I would probably guess that they were probably scripts floating around. They probably already had their budgets allotted. Most movies are planned even back then a year in advance. So yeah, that that would make perfect sense.
1: But then in this same period, the movies that do fall into the Norman Lear ownership style are Zapped, hysterical, Savannah Smiles. Those actually do seem like something Norman Lear would put out, don't they? <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, and and not bad either. I mean, Hysterical is one of those movies that... It
1: doesn't live up to its title.
0: No, it's got like three really, and I mean seriously, really funny jokes. Sadly, it only has three really funny jokes. Not a very good movie, but Zapped is actually a very charming, entertaining movie, and Savannah Smiles is just adorable. I mean, seriously, you gotta have a heart of coal <laughs> to not like that. My, one of my best friends, Jeff, he named his daughter Savannah because of that movie. And, uh, if, if I'm allowed to backtrack to Vice Squad, I just want to say I freaking adore that movie. <laughs> Ramrod. Ramrod. He pulls up the ladder. I'll burn you. I'm the devil. <laughs> That guy is insane. You look at that movie, and you just don't know how that guy didn't go on to become a huge star. And Wingshauser single... Wings
1: was Wings was not necessarily a small name, though,
0: No. the 80s. Well, I'm saying, though, how he didn't become a big star. And I was actually about to lead into a joke, but one word tells it all. Cocaine. That's why. But you want to see... To me, Ramrod is the, not so much the successor, but at least the equal to Scorpio from Dirty Harry. I've always felt that nobody, you know, Dirty Harry, as you know, is one of my favorite detective thrillers of all time. And one of the reasons I think it's so good is because Scorpio is a fantastic villain. And Ramrod doesn't quite get there, but he is about as close as I think any movie ever got to portraying a psychotic villain that good
1: still under norman lear's tutorship as we go through 1983 and 1984 puts out some you know some interesting things like deadly force and that but you know, nothing great until he gets to 1983 and puts out i'm not a personal fan of this movie But Eddie and the Cruisers was a major success, both at the box office and in pop culture. And then he follows that up with this stupid little mockumentary called This Is Spinal Tap by one of the people that used to be on one of his sitcoms.
0: I love Eddie and the Cruisers. I'm not going to say it's like a favorite or an all-time That's a good movie. Good movie, good music. You know, I wish we had more movies like that now. Little movies about people, you know, people that are dreamers and aspiring and they go through the ups and the downs trying to get somewhere. I like getting the cruisers, but you actually skipped one of my favorite movies from this time period. You blew right over it. And that is the sort of kind of semi-spiritual follow-up to Rock and Roll High School, Get Crazy. If you've ever seen Rock and Roll High School, take the concert scene from that movie and make an entire movie around it. And that's Get Crazy. Same director. Daniel Stern, Malcolm McDowell. This movie is freaking funny it's so worth hunting down it's very hard to find though
1: this is spinal tap and that are huge hits norman Lee, remember he bought the company three years earlier for 25 million dollars he was probably kicking himself for a while after seeing what blade runner would eventually become he was probably going well that was a dumb move until he sold that 25 million dollar investment for 485 million dollars by selling embassy to coca-cola not a bad upsell huh so now at this point coca-cola has embassy they rename embassy they rename it to embassy communications and then eventually embassy limited partnership communications by 1988 now under coca-cola they're making tv shows like married with children and 227 they're, they're putting out movies Like The Sure Thing, The Emerald Forest, and Crime Wave, which, if you've ever listened to Bruce Campbell's commentary on the DVD, shows that under Coca-Cola's leadership, they didn't didn't know how to make a a good movie. They just knew how to make a movie. The real interesting thing that Coca-Cola did was they decided they didn't need all of Embassy, so they started breaking everything off. They owned, Coca-Cola owned Columbia Pictures at this time. So they were like, we don't really need another theatrical distribution company. They ended up selling the theatrical division to Dino De Laurentiis, who who folded it into De Laurentiis Entertainment Group, DEG. And then he broke off the home video part of Embassy Home Entertainment and formed Nelson Entertainment, which he then sold to another subsidiary. So now, Embassy is kind of all over the place. You got Dino handre- handling theatrical, kind of competing with Coca-Cola, who you know through Columbia, and then you got the home video market, which DEG had its own label. So now he created his own number one competitor in the home video market.
0: It's pretty much the recipe for disaster, as far as uh, corporations are concerned. But but you'll you'll notice
1: up to this point. Embassy, Avco Embassy, whatever you want to call it, had either a single owner like Norman Lear or Levin or like Avco who really didn't meddle with with the product. They let their people do their job. Coca-Cola comes in. They're not going to just run this like a studio. They're going to run this like a company. And that's what happened. It all fell apart.
0: Well, much like Norman Lear was good at what he did so he knew what he was doing, that's what coca Cola's is doing. Except the difference between Coca-Cola and Norman Lear is Norman Lear knew entertainment. And he also knew what to involve himself in and what to leave enough alone on. And Coca-Cola was the exact opposite. They knew how to bottle a product and sell it to people. And that's all they knew.
1: So you could technically say Embassy is still living on through DEG. So once Dino got it, he's putting out Maximum Overdrive, Manhunter, Raw Deal. He's also catering to children transformers the movie my little pony the movie dino puts out in the next all in 1986 also still blue velvet radioactive dreams trick-or-treat body slam crimes of the heart dino's own king kong lives he's very much carrying on embassy's legacy isn't he
0: oh definitely definitely you can see it in there i mean just like cronenberg was the more experimental filmmaker early on you've now got lynch and it's it's and albert pune
1: and michael mann and well
0: albert yeah of course uh, all these people and i was just referring to the kind of one-to-one weirdness factor but yeah a great lineup of filmmakers not all great movies though uh blue velvet is a fantastic movie and manhunter but king kong lives is wow here's the weird thing though dino
1: always kind of worked against himself for instance He released Blue Velvet and Radioactive Dreams, both films that he owned and distributed, on the same day, theatrically, to compete against each other. I'm not so sure that's a sound business move,
0: huh? I don't know. Again, given audiences, I don't know. They might have been thinking one would appeal to one audience, another would appeal to a different audience. Uh, I know with Radioactive Dreams, there was a lot of interference in editing. So the problems may have already begun before the film even hit the distribution stage on that one.
1: Well, So so see, Avco Embassy is so well-remembered. And I think one of the reasons that most people forget about how big of an impact Avco Embassy had in this market was with all of this, after what Coca-Cola did by breaking them up, Everybody owns something different. Some of the titles are owned by Studio Canal. Some are owned by Ritalo Pictures. Some are owned by MGM. Some by 20th Century Fox. Some by Image Entertainment. Some by Criterion. Some by Lionsgate. Some by Anchor Bay and so forth. Some by Sony. Wouldn't it be great to have all the Avco Embassy films under one banner again?
0: Well, not only would it have been great, but this is how we ended up with that mess with Manhunter and Evil Dead, because Evil Dead 2 was made by D.E.G. as well. When the whole Hannibal sequel thing was coming about, they wanted another one and, uh, they, they held up the rights on Army of Darkness because of that. So yeah, for more reasons than one, it would have been great if we had them all under one banner.
1: And I think just people, people, everybody knows Roger Corman's stuff, especially from this period. Everybody knows Charles Band's. Everybody knows from the 70s AIPs. I think people forget about how much of an impact Embassy had.
0: There's a very specific reason, and you sort of said it. You said Roger Corman. You said Charles Band. But then you said a company name. And I think that's why. We have a company that changed hands several times, has many amazing titles. We didn't even cover all of them. Uh, Maybe mention them, but we didn't talk about them. But we have no figurehead. We have no representation. And you cannot underestimate, speaking of Coca-Cola or any of these groups, marketing a product and having a figurehead having someone that represents you as the company uh having that face you know obviously for disney they're a company that you know is run by different people at different times but what do everybody think about when they think of disney they think of mickey mouse okay and then no, as silly as that is maybe that's i think oh,
1: okay then maybe i misspoke maybe i should have said new world pictures instead of roger corman and empire pictures instead of charles band
0: they still have those names behind them, and not everybody knows this stuff because, you know, a lot of people didn't study this stuff like we did. In the 80s, I knew who Charles Band was, even when I didn't fully understand uh, the impact of the man had his picture was in movie magazines every so often he popped up on a video he was out there he was a figurehead and corman was all over the place I, I you know i was born in the 70s and corman was already very well established and you know i don't know how many hundreds of films at that point and i knew who roger corman was when i was 10 years old avco embassy known for their titles for their movies but it's not like anybody immediately associates them with Avco because uh, Escape from New York. First name you think of. Come on. What's the first name?
1: John Carpenter.
0: Yeah. His name's above the fricking title. There you go. It, these films, a lot of these looking at this list, I forgot Avco did them, dude. And that's probably why. They went from one owner to another owner. They had a lot of different products. They made exploitation to family films to dramas, a couple of artsy-type films. Uh, a very diverse group, but no real identity,
1: Really? Well, and then, and that's not even getting into, I didn't even talk about half of how fractured this comes. Because, like, remember Nelson Home Entertainment before, before Dino got it? Yeah, yeah. Well, Nelson Entertainment helped form Castle Rock Entertainment with Rob Reiner. But then Nelson was bought out by Orion Pictures. But then Orion Pictures went bankrupt, and then Orion slash Nelson was bought by New Line Cinema. New Line Cinema then was bought by Disney. So it's kind of like this becomes so ridiculously fractured after Coca-Cola that it's it's just such a mess and I think that's where where you're absolutely right there was no I, I don't even know if I'd call under Norman Lear or Levin a singular vision like you said, a figurehead. I mean, with Empire Entertainment, Charles Band, it was his vision overall. With New World, it was Roger Corman. You know, even AIP, you'd have Nicholson and Arkoff. It was their vision. There was no vision with Embassy after Coke bought it besides, we need to make money. Because I, I truly believe when Norman Lear had it, even with all the TV products, he was looking to make money obviously but i think he was trying to put out the best damn product he could he didn't interfere with the movies he was putting out but they were following his style coca-cola said we're in control now and especially like i said go back to bruce campbell's commentary track on crime wave they were messing with that movie every step of the way because they knew better than sam raimi and bruce campbell how to make this movie a hit and what happened to that movie? It was a total bomb and nobody liked it.
0: It's a it's obviously kind of a fun cult movie by today's standards, but as a
1: I enjoy that one more on a I see what they were going for and parts work, but man, that movie just you can feel the studio interference oh, all the way through *Crime Wave*.
0: It's a mess. I mean, it's a mess. It's it's a charming mess, but it's a mess nonetheless. It, you can definitely uh, see it. I mean, even *The Emerald Forest* wasn't, as I as I recall, wasn't a very big hit. Uh, many critics lambasted that movie for being overindulgent. It very much was. Yeah, very much. And does that shock you again, Coca-Cola? I mean, you see this a lot, and it's it's hard to explain. But I I think the closest I could come up with an example or comparison would be DC. You know, started uh, with Warner Brothers to do these movies. They wanted to compete with Marvel, and they said, "Oh, but we're going to allow the directors to each have their own vision." Well okay. As far as making independent films that are separate from each other, that's great. But you're talking about something that's supposed to be a singular vision. And I kind of see that mentality going on here. Coke just did not know what to do and when to do it. And that's it.
1: Also, one of the things that you saw when Coke took over, back under Norman Lear and Levin, the most they ever spent was on Escape from New York, $6 million. And that was still even pre-Norman Lear. Most of Avco's Output were one to two million dollar budgets. Coca Cola gets them. You're at nine, ten, fifteen million dollar budgets for these films. I think Coca Cola saw if we throw money at it, it'll be good.
0: Yeah, in in a weird sort of way, they were ahead of their time. uh I mean that very sarcastically because we're not too far away from the beginning of that era. It, it's it's a period that for this company obviously creatively they were bankrupt you know uh again they they needed a stronger hand in one place uh, in another place they needed to leave well enough alone i mean we can't let's be fair here at uh, the xyz murders aka crime wave we can't guarantee that would have been a good movie okay it, let's be fair on this
1: i'm gonna go out on a limb and say though that if sam raimi were actually able to shoot the movie without constantly having to clear everything with the studio it probably would have been a better movie
0: And I don't disagree. I'm only just trying to, I'm trying to be as fair as I humanly can here. Because, you know, we can still see the pieces that make that movie up. And I don't know what would have come out. That's all I'm saying. I don't know, you know, Bruce Campbell was supposed to be the lead. That would have added a lot to it, I think. And who knows what kind of creative energy would have come from that. I'm just saying that nothing here worked. Like the sure thing I think works because you've got Rob Reiner and he knew exactly what to do. And they probably left him alone. Whereas the Emerald Forest, that could have used probably a stronger hand. A chorus line was probably about several years too late. And so you're just seeing a bunch of decisions that, I don't know, it, I'm looking at these titles and if you go before that and you look at when the other people were there and there's just this flourishing of, of, uh, creativity in many genres. And then you look at the Coca-Cola period and it's just like, ah!
1: But then also, like I said, they had some good movies in the, in you know, the 83 and 84 and in the 70s and that. But just look at that period from about 1979 to 1981. Look at how many amazing films they put out almost back to back to back to back. Th- th- that's almost unprecedented from a small studio to just put out Scanners and The Howling and Escape from New York and Prom Night and and The Manitou and Phantasm and I can go on and on and on. That was just one string of, they might not have been huge financial hits, but looking back at it, they were putting out one fantastic movie after
0: another. And, and again, a lot of creativity. There's a lot of creativity. There's a lot of fun weirdness. I mean, take this job and shove it is actually a fun like, redneck-style beer-drinking movie, you know? It's a lot of fun. A lot of these titles... I'm looking at them and very few of them are what you would call dogs. Uh, there's a couple in there, but
1: except, except then you go back and look at the sixties and seventies and you've got a lot more dogs.
0: Oh, definitely. But no, I'm agreeing with your assessment that this period, there is this vibrancy and you know, we skipped over, you mentioned it briefly, but the movie didn't and buried and that film is kind of unique. If you look at it, a lot of people don't talk about this, but it's not credited, but that film is pretty much an HP Lovecraft ripoff. It is Shadow over Innsmouth. It's just done differently. Instead of fish people in a town, it's this guy that brings the dead back to life. But it's almost identical in its structure and its ending. It's a very creative movie, and that's the whole period. All of these films, Hogwild, okay, not a great movie, but they took a chance.
1: What would you say to the audience out there who might not even have realized That Avco Embassy helped craft so much of, so much of the early 80s exploitation cinema as they did.
0: Well, this one's simple because it's the same. If if you're listening to a podcast like this, you love movies. I'm willing to bet you love movies. You love movies like us. This period we're talking about and these titles, you should go out and actively seek them out. And, you know, if you don't like one, try another one. If the genre doesn't suit your taste, try a different genre. But try out these titles. Watch these films. And I really believe that if we can get people watching these very – Adventive, creative imaginative movies again a new generation is going to just naturally come up that's going to crave these titles and they're going to want to see i don't say i'm not saying we have to have the 80s over again the approach is what's missing and it would be nice to
1: have that again don't you think i absolutely agree my my final thought on this is avco embassy is sort of the forgotten i won't even say mini major but before canon came along and, and sort of made the whole mini major thing an actual viable concept. I think Avco Embassy laid the groundwork for Galan and Globus to come in on where they were saying, We're gonna have creative freedom, we're gonna take chances, and we're gonna put up because remember, even though they're only putting up, you know, two million dollars for a film like The Howling, Roger Corman's only putting up half a million at this point. Charles Bann's only putting up seven hundred and fifty thousand. So they were outdoing their competition and they were taking far more chances that way. So I think Avco Embassy is just one of those forgotten companies people should know more about. I agree. So on that note, where can Fred Fritz be found?
0: Well, it's the soup kitchen over at Facebook called Movie Apocalypse. Uh, not a lot going on there, kids, but keep on hoping maybe something will happen.
1: And I can be found at 1201beyond.com. You can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Guys, don't forget the companies that really helped shape your childhood, even if you didn't know it. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night. <laughs> Thank you Production. Find it and other great content at twelve o one beyondcom